Welcome once again to Benchwork, a podcast designed to provide you with knowledge, experiences, tools, and ideas about venture capital, entrepreneurship, and finance. Interviews and conversations with top-notch global experts will take place every week, hosted by me, Hector Shibata, Director of Investments and Portfolio at Daisy Ventures, a global corporate venture capital fund, an associate professor for entrepreneurial finance and venture capital. Don't forget to follow us for more content on Medium, LinkedIn, and Twitter as ACB underscore BC. With no more to say, hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. Thank you for being today with us. It's great to have Katie Shea. So, Katie, thank you for taking the time to, to, to speak with us. How's everything with you? Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So, let's start the conversation. So, why don't you let us know who's Katie? Tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. Um, we'll, go, we'll go way back. Uh, I'll try to keep it somewhat brief, but I think it gives, it gives some helpful color. Um, so I, I grew up surrounded by lifestyle entrepreneurs, my mom, my dad, aunts and uncles, everybody in my family owned a small business. Um, so manufacturing company, catering company, daycare center, uh, a kitchen bath renovation company. And I think so from a pretty young age, I just thought that's what people did. <laughs> like everybody had a business. Uh, that's how households were run. Um, I didn't have a ton of experience with like big corporations or stable paychecks or anything like that. And I think just because my family was so entrepreneurial, the dinner conversation often was like, you know, talking about, I think I knew what a purchase order was when I was like eight years old. Um, and only in hindsight did I realize like how influential that experience was. So I, I definitely followed in uh, my family's footsteps in that way I went um, for like a pretty high risk, high reward career trajectory myself. Um, so I, I went to NYU undergrad um, in New York City, um, studied finance and marketing and entrepreneurship, and actually started my first company in college. Uh, my business partner uh, was a friend turned business partner. She's an amazing designer. I don't have like a fashion bone in my body, but she was incredible. Um, and she kind of ran everything on the design and product development side of the house. And I was really responsible for sales and marketing and distribution. And so we launched that business in 2009, uh, in like the middle of the recession, it was very humbling. Um, I did not know what venture capital was at this point in my life. I didn't have you know, rich friends or family. My dad was a firefighter turned small business owner. And my mom, my mom stayed at home and raised four kids. Um, so we bootstrapped the company to profitability because that's how we thought you had to do it. <laughs> um, so we, we never raised outside capital. Uh, we, we factored against our receivables to grow. It was a B2B like purchase order heavy business. And we sold that business in 2013. Um, and it was not, you know, a unicorn, like sexy exit of any kind, but I was 25. It was some liquidity. We had not consistently paid ourselves for five years. So it was, it was good. <laughs> it was a good outcome for, for what we had built. Um, so from there, I really, uh, I, I stayed, I kind of moved from like starting a company, a non-technical company more into the tech side of the house. And the reason why is it was you know, running a manufacturing company day to day. It was infuriating to me, like how archaic a lot of the processes were that were not technical. So like 
I would be receiving $500,000 purchase orders via fax machine. And I was like dealing with EDI, 3PL manufacturing systems that felt like they were born in the 1970s. And I was like, oh my gosh, like technology would make this so much better. Um, so I became increasingly interested in tech and particularly retail tech. Um, and so after we sold the business, I, I took a, a little bit of time off and then I joined an early stage technology startup in New York called Order Groove. Um, you guys can think of Order Groove. I don't know if I'm familiar with like Amazon subscribe and save, where you can like opt into a recurring delivery of like multivitamins, pet food, anything like that. Um, we built a platform that was just like that, but white labeled. So we worked with like the Amazon, I'm sorry, we worked with like the CVSs, the L'Oreal's, the Walmart of the world to help them implement those subscription commerce programs. Um, so stayed there pre-seed to series B uh, as the head of marketing uh, responsible kind of for all the, the growth metrics from that zero to 10 million in revenue stage. And then I joined a uh, friends from college and basically were like, Hey, we joined this really hot new startup called Homejoy. They'd raised $40 million from tier one venture funds. Um, they were in the home services business. And I joined as the GM of New York, uh, the general manager of New York. So just like responsible for the, the P L it was our second largest market outside of San Francisco. And I'll fast forward to that one, but the company went bankrupt six months after I joined. <laughs> so that was really my first experience of like what not to do when you raise too much venture capital um, and just kind of lots of lessons, incredible colleagues, everyone like rebounded and recovered quite quickly. But I was like, oh, right. Sometimes this story doesn't end well. Um, and so from there, I ran a, a growth consultancy for a couple of years. Um, after I sold my business, I had started angel investing a bit. And about four years ago, I was recruited by a small venture fund in New York called Kairos. Um, you know, it was a pre-seed seed fund. We focused mostly on consumer tech. Um, I, because I was, you know, writing these small angel investments, I kind of had gotten, I guess, a little bit well-known in New York um, for doing so. And I honestly, I loved it. I was like, I can't believe venture capital can be a job. I can't believe I can like talk to founders all day um, and get paid to do that. And so um, when I was angel investing, it was very much becoming my favorite part of the day, like talking to founders before work and at lunch and after work. And I was like, oh, wow, I, this is this is cool. There's a lot of things I don't like about venture, which we can get into also. But um, for me, I just love working with early stage founders. I think because I have a little bit of a like underdog background myself for having landed in this asset class. Um, I love betting on people before it's obvious that you should bet on them. And a lot of my, a lot of my um, breakout investments are like not the Silicon Valley cool kid founder. Uh, my most successful companies are based in New York and Austin, Texas and Washington, DC, um, Seattle, Washington. And in my, in my belief is that's like, where founders are starting companies because they are obsessed with solving a problem and not because it's easy for them to raise money because their friends are all in venture or whatever it is. So um, about la uh, last fall, the founding partner of Kairos, um, fortunately still left very amicably good friends. Uh, he, he wanted to move later stage um, and, and kind of have more of an incubation model. And so a lot of heart to hearts, um, but I just, didn't want to do that. <laughs> um, you know, by the time, you know, in my opinion, you're competing with Sequoia for like a series B term sheet, like 
the company's going to be fine. You're kind of, it's more like a commoditized stage at that point. And so I really kind of want to like follow my heart and stay early stage. Um, so simultaneously, uh, a good friend of mine, this woman, Lucy Wang, my now business partner, you know, we met almost 10 years ago, have gotten to know each other. You know, we first as friends then as co-investors, now partners, um, we had kind of been uh, ruminating on a thesis. And so um, as kind of Kairos was shifting directions, I was like, okay, this is the time. Like we should, we should like jump in, raise a, a debut venture fund during a global pandemic, which was super fun. Um, and uh, that is what I'm up to now. So I'm the co-founding general partner of a new venture fund called Divergent Capital. Uh, we are investing pre-seed, um, first check, you know, many times pre-product, pre-revenue, really at the intersection of, of Lucy and my world. So Lucy, I kind of alluded to this, I came into venture very much from that CMO, like founder type of background. Um, Lucy is a deep tech scientist turned investor. So like very complimentary, like more of like the CTO, CPO skill set, kind of next to my growth and commercialization skill set. And so, um, so yeah, that is, that is what we're doing. I'll pause there. I just gave you guys a, a lot of information, but hopefully that's just helpful, high level. Great. No, great. Thank you. Thank you. You have a great background. You've been entrepreneur and also you've been investor and that's quite impressive. Uh, tell us as, as which one is more difficult to be, to be, it is more difficult to be an entrepreneur or it's more difficult being an investor. Yeah. And which one do you like better? Um, I definitely think it's harder to be an entrepreneur. Um, and I'll, I'll caveat that a little bit, but I think, um, it's, it's just such a different type of, it's such a different job. Like when you're an entrepreneur, you, you're living like day by day, week by week, you know, generally speaking, you have KPIs that are moving rapidly in either direction that are giving you constant feedback, good or bad, if you're doing a good job. <laughs> um, and I think that's in some ways it, it's nice to like have the quantification of your skill set or like if things are working or if they're not working. Um, I think generally if things are starting to go well, like as a founder and entrepreneur, you have a team, you have like a team to manage, you have investors to manage, you have so many stakeholders to manage. Um, so I, I definitely think it's harder to be an entrepreneur. Um, that said, one of the biggest adjustments for me moving from operating to investing was the length of the feedback cycle of if you are good or bad at what you do. So as an investor, you must have to have like this insane confidence <laughs> before you actually have feedback and like know if you are good or not. And what I mean by that is you have these proxy KPIs, right? So like, let's say I invest in a founder, you know, they raise a million dollars on a $5 million valuation. That's their first round of capital that they're raising a couple, a year later, like Sequoia invests 3 million on a $30 million valuation, right? Like on paper, I'm, that's good. Like I, I invested before at a lower valuation than a blue chip fund. Like that company could still completely implode in like the, the three to five to 10 years after that. And so um, one of the things that I think is difficult and candidly, one of the things I don't like about venture is how much like ego and, and confidence there is, <laughs> um, before you really even know if you're good, like until you've really been doing 
until you've been investing for 15 years and you've returned capital to yourself or your LPs, you're kind of just winging it. <laughs> like, you're like we, we think we're good. Our companies are growing and investors keep putting follow on capital. But until these companies IPO or until there's an M&A transaction, it's all like paper. It's all on paper. And so I think there's a certain type of personality that can handle that and a certain type of personality that can't. And I think I, I end up mentoring a lot of young VCs. And I think the biggest challenge is, you know, they've they get the job. It's like such a sexy industry. Everyone's so happy. All their friends and family are congratulating them that like they got into this industry. But, you know, it's really easy for two years to go by really quickly where you met with like a million people. You had so many coffees with founders and co-investors, but you didn't actually like get a deal done. Or even if you did, maybe got one or two deals done. And like the, I think a lot of people are just like, I can't like this feedback loop is like too long for me. Like, I just, I don't feel like that's a marketable skill set that I just had coffee with a thousand people. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think, I think like a lot of things, tech, especially, it just looks very, it looks very sexy from the outside. And it's, it's not always the case. It's not, always, it's not right for everybody. And as an investor, what would you say are the key characteristics that you look at any, any, any founder, any, any team yeah. as, as you make an investment? Yeah, it's definitely a blend of art and science. Um, I, I tend to use the word obsessed a lot. Like I have found the most success working with founders that are obsessed with the problem that they're solving. And I actually like in a frothy market, I think sometimes it's hard to differentiate. Like to me, there's a big difference between somebody who is obsessed with solving a problem and somebody who is obsessed with wanting to start a company. Because I think if you think about the trajectory or the timeline of like true multi-billion dollar outcomes, you're generally talking about like 10 year, like a 10 year adventure. And like, yes, the highs are going to be high, but the lows are going to be so low. Like it's so rare that you hear about a multi-billion dollar outcome. And then you interview that founder or CEO after they've IPO'd and they're like, yeah, we almost ran out of cash 10 times. I had to fire my team. Like I gained 40 pounds. I lost 40 pounds. I called off my engagement. I didn't see my kids for 10 years. Like the, the hard part is so hard. And so I think if you don't have that obsession with solving the problem, it's difficult to persevere through that, right? Versus like, oh, it's really fun when you're getting like all the tech crunch headlines, but like when, excuse my French, like when shit hits the fan, like, and no one's paying attention to you, like you have to have a reason that you wanna keep going. And hopefully it's because you started the company to solve the problem. So I think that's one of the, the first things that is really important to me. It's hard to quantify, but I think, you know, I find myself asking, especially given how early I'm investing, right? There's not like a ton of numbers to look at or analyze or underwrite. So I, I definitely spend a lot of time understanding the motivation of this person to, to start the company. Ideally, they don't just like want to solve the problem. They have some type of unique skill set or point of view that makes them the right person to solve that problem, or at least, you know, knows that they can like bring on XYZ people to help them solve that problem. Um, and then, you know, I think there's the technology and the go-to-market, right? So to me, I think it's definitely founding team is kind of like one, two, and three. But if they are building something technology-related, hopefully there's, they may not have the MVP built, but like there's some type of 
wireframes or if, if it's kind of more of like the PhD type of founder, they tend to have academic research papers that we can read through. Like new tech and science doesn't come out in anywhere. It's usually like built on some type of iterative process of something that already exists. Um, so we're definitely looking for, for you know, just an opinion there or like some type of visualization of what it could be if, if it goes to plan. And then, you know, we definitely do quite a bit of diligence on the commercialization side. Um, of our first five investments, four out of five are B2B businesses. So a big part of our diligence process is calling those prospective customers and saying like, hey, like we're talking to this startup, they're thinking about building X, Y, and Z. What do you think? You know, would you buy it? If so, how much would you pay for it? Why would you pay that much for it? Um, so we definitely spend a lot of time there and it's a very good signal for us when those conversations turn into, hey, we actually wanna meet the team and like, like have them pitch us or have them give us a demo, which is a win-win for both sides, right? Because that gives us more conviction as investors that there's actual buyers that could be interested in like this product or service. It's also great for the founders because, you know, if we give them, if we give them a check for an equity investment, great. But if we can bring them customers that can give them real revenue, like that's, that's the dream. <laughs> um, so I'd say those are kind of like, the three pieces for us. It's it's team, it's technology, and it's commercialization and go to market. Okay. Are, are there other are there other things that you measure uh, while you analyze any startup uh, in order to do an investment as a VC fund? For instance, in terms of the in terms of the context or in terms of the you know the market size or yeah. other yeah. issues. <sighs> I, market size is so tricky, I think, and maybe this is a little bit of a contrarian opinion here, but um, I don't know. I, I think like most of the real, most of the multi-billion dollar venture outcomes, like they tend to create a market in a way versus just like being, taking a piece of an existing market. So obviously it's something you should look at, right? Like, <laughs> is there a billion plus dollar market out there where this company can continue to grow to, to truly be venture scale? But I think maybe for us, it's, it's kind of less of a part of the decision set. You know, I think if we were series C, series D investors where the companies are already doing a hundred million in revenue a year, and we need to be convinced that they can do, you know, 2 billion in revenue a year, I think it's quite a different analysis process. So I guess I'd answer that question of like, we. We think about it, but I, I wouldn't say it's like the biggest part of, a, of what we're thinking about when we're getting involved. And, and, and also, do you, do you typically speak with other investors, let's say prior investors, mm. angel investors, friends and family or seed funds as, as you invest in those companies? Yeah, um, yes, uh, but probably not as much as, as others might. Um, we're pretty conviction-based. So we, we have a fairly concentrated portfolio. We're investing in 25 companies. Um, so, I mean, every, every fund is different and every, there's so many versions of success, you know, Sequoia invests in about 35 to 40 companies per portfolio. We have some firms that do, we know really well that do like 15 to 20, even more concentrated. So we're, we're kind of on the more concentrated side with 25. Um, so, for us, and I think one of the reasons why Lucy and I decided to go for this, despite the chaotic macro environment, um, 
is our skill sets really enable us to get to conviction with speed without a ton of like third party, like, um, like diligence. We do diligence, but like, it's less of, I'm going to call a friend that's also a co-investor and be like, what do you think? And then over index on that, right? Like usually we're, we're getting to some place of conviction ourselves, you know, Lucy on the tech or product side, myself on the go-to-market side. And when we are doing kind of like an extra layer of gut checking, it, it tends to look less like other kind of generalist co-investors. It tends to look more like, you know, we invested in a, a software only medical device. So like we called a bunch of like medical experts that had experience with, with the surgery and with the technology. Um, we, we invested in a, a predictive analytics platform that's targeting like the higher ed industry. Um, so selling into colleges in the US. So we, you know, we called a bunch of colleges, right? And like prospective customers. So a little bit less of like leaning into co-investors and a little bit more leaning into like market experts based on the specific company. Um, that said, there's obviously some experts that are like, they are healthcare investors or they are fintech investors. So to the extent that those are one of our friends, we'll certainly give them a call, but that's generally not where we're getting the bulk of our conviction from. Many investors look at product market fit as they invest. Do you take in, into consideration product market fit or do you invest in early stages? Yeah, we're, we're way ahead of product market fit. <laughs> Our, we're like hoping uh, that's kind of what we're betting on. You know, I think the best way to think about Lucy and I is like, I would say like, we're kind of like deep tech generalists. You know, we really are looking to back companies that have like a tech or science edge at, at the core of what they're building. It might be, they may not come to fruition, but like that, if it does, that's the, that's the goal. Um, so we're usually backing like founders. They don't even have it. They don't have a team. Sometimes they're not even incorporated. Um, so for us, we're taking on a couple of risks. We're taking on technology risk. Like they can actually turn this MVP into something that is like complete and full and works and could be sold. Uh, we're taking on the go-to-market risk. Um, and I think for us, there's outliers, of course, but in a deal, in an ideal world, one of two of those risks is getting de-risked in kind of six to 12 months after our initial investment. And that to us is where, you know, we are, there's a lot of nomenclature here, but we're investing at pre-seed and usually the next stage of the investment is like a seed stage investment. And so what we found is that our peers at, at seed stage funds, they, they're less comfortable taking on both risks. They either want to see something's been de-risked on the tech side or something's been de-risked on the commercialization side. Um, and that's kind of how they're, you know, saying, okay, we're comfortable with this valuation going from 5 million to 15 million because these things have been proven out. Um, and I would say even at the next stage, like I'd say product market fit maybe is starting to happen at the series A. So we're, we're a couple steps ahead of that for, for sure. And how do you find product market fit? How do you know that a startup has already achieved product market fit? It's a good question. I'll give you kind of more of a, a philosophical answer when I like am talking to my founders late night when they're like stressed. I think it's um, it's kind of this moment in a in a business's life cycle where you go from like you feel like you're pushing all the time, like against heavy resistance, like 
talking to X customer in this sector and they're like, oh, that's kind of interesting, but like, we can't really prioritize this. And like, it just feels like hard. <laughs> you're, you're like throwing a million things out there. Nothing's like really sticking. And I feel like when that like first moment of product market fit starts to happen, there's like some part of the business that is, seems to get easier. Like there's more of like a pull than a push happening where it's not like you're like painfully following up with a prospect every week. It's like people are actually starting to reach out to you or, you know, you, you, you have four features. You thought this was going to be your best one, but actually this one is the one that has all of the engagement. And like, there's usually like some trigger of like positivity that happens somewhere. And I think that's where I really encourage founders of like, it's so hard. There's so much going on in early stage startups, but like focus in on that thing that is that just feels easy right now. Like that means there's like some momentum that is outside of your control. They're like, that product is working, that feature is working, that sector is the right sector and like drop everything else until you can figure out if like this will still kind of feel easier. Um, so yeah, I use like the push versus pull metaphor a lot. And uh, typically apart from capital, because investors, they, they provide capital to an entrepreneur, to any startup. Apart from capital, what's the added value that these investors can bring to the table to entrepreneurs? Yeah, it totally depends. Um, so for us, I would say it's really two key areas. Um, you know, I've spent most of my career as like a CML at early stage startups. Lucy is very much like has that CTO skill set. Um, so as I mentioned, when we're getting involved, it's not like the founders have an executive team yet, right? They don't have the money to pay a C-suite a couple hundred K a year to be working full-time for them. So, so much of what's happening in the early days is founders are convincing people to like work with them for sweat equity or for advisory shares and kind of like try to fill those gaps without the, without the like salary to be able to pay them. Um, so that's the first thing Lucy and I can really help with, right? Like we're, we're never going to bet on a team that we think like absolutely needs us to succeed. Like that's not a scalable strategy. We are investing in 25 companies. And like, if I had to be the CMO for all 25 of those companies, like that would, that model would break, <laughs> that wouldn't work. But I, I do think there's like absolutely moments and times for us. It's usually right after the investment where like, we can step in for a month or so to just help interview like marketing candidates, help interview software engineers, like things that were like, we've just like done things and seen things that maybe our founders haven't where it's not difficult for us to hop on a call for 30 minutes. And like, it's just a skill set that the founder doesn't have yet. So we do that a lot. We definitely in the beginning are helping with like 30, 60, 90 day plans, right? Like you just went and you raised this money. Now you have the capital in the bank and a lot of founders, it's like, it feels like a win because you like raise the money. But I think after sometimes the money's in the bank, people are like, oh crap, like I don't actually know what to do with this money. <laughs> um, even though I've been telling investors that I absolutely know what to do with this money. And so we tend to like do like a, a workshop like after that, right? To be like, hey, like this is what we would do. This is where we would put these dollars and test these things. These are the hires like take it or leave it right the the founders are the experts they're the ones running our business running their business every day but um we definitely think can like have some opinions that they can take or leave 
Um, so really, I think it's like the the skill set, more of that like interim executive um, skill set that can step in in the early days as they're getting off the ground, and then. Equally, if not more importantly, you know, Lucy and I have been in the early stage investment scene for 15 years as like operators, founders, angels, venture investors. Um, so that that follow on round of capital, we like really get involved, like help them create the deck, build the narrative, make like we literally did this week. We have a company that's going out for their Series A. We introduced them to like 50 Series A funds like in the same day because like a dream fundraise looks like uh, it's a numbers game, right? Like you talk to a hundred funds and hopefully at the end of like a two, three week process, you have multiple term sheets that rarely happens, but the dream scenario is you have multiple term sheets that you can negotiate against one another. So it's actually like pretty important to have it be like almost a very rigid sales cycle, right? Where like you send out all those first emails on the same day, you try to line up all your first meetings the same week, all your second meetings the week after, and like hopefully have, you know, multiple people, multiple firms interested where you as the founding team have the luxury of deciding who you want to work with. Again, that doesn't always work out, but like that, that's a big part, I think, of, of where we tend to get involved. Usually that's like six to 12 to 18 months after, after the initial investment. Any final recommendation for those that want to be entrepreneurs or those that want to become angel investors, Katie? Any recommendations? Yes. Um, so for the entrepreneur piece, um, there's a couple of routes, right? I think my route was, I went from being a broke college student to a broke startup founder. And like, I didn't have any other experience. Like I didn't know better, right? I never like made six figures. I never had the health insurance. So like, there's definitely that route, which is like, there's the stage of your life where you have the least responsibilities and the least dollars uh, or at least expenses to like go for it. Maybe you can like live at your parents or you can live at a partner's place or whatever. Like maybe there's some life stage where you can keep your costs super, super low to like go after this high risk, high reward thing, which is, which is what I did. Um, probably the smarter way to do it is <laughs> go work for a startup first. If, if you think you, like, if you have some idea and you're like, not sure if you have the skill set or the confidence or whatever it might be to like launch it yet, go go find a startup within the sector of interest, right? And like, maybe it's series A, series B, they can actually pay you. <laughs> like you'll have health insurance. Like it will be hard because startups are super intense, but like hopefully you'll walk away with some type of playbook of this, this type of thing works, this type of thing doesn't work that you can ultimately like apply to your own startup once you have some savings or whatever it is from, from having the job. Um, I think also a lot of people go, you know, they, they try to get into venture right away and then actually move to operating. Um, I've, I've seen that quite a bit where investors kind of fall in love with one portfolio company and they're like, that's actually what I want to do <laughs> instead of investing. Um, and then from there, again, I've seen a lot of people like now, actually, while I was working here, I have my own idea and now I want to work there. So there's, I don't think there's any like, like it's the whatever path feels best for you is I think that the path to entrepreneurship you should take. Um, as for angel investing, I think it obviously depends on a few things. One, like, do you, are you a credited investor? Do you have any liquidity? 
Um, if the answer is yes, I encourage people to treat angel investments as if it's their own micro fund. So like, do not put, again, depends on your liquidity, but for somebody like me, I put, I started putting $5,000 into companies. You know, I would, did not start at 50,000 or a hundred thousand. And like, ideally you put $5,000 into 20 companies over X years and you, you can kind of treat it as like a mini portfolio, right? Cause it's, it's like an outlier game and venture, like of those 20, maybe one or two are going to return all of your capital, generally speaking, which is crazy. Um, but I would encourage people to think about it that way. And then if you don't actually have liquidity, um, there's a couple of ways to go, right? Like you can, now there's like all these like rolling fund setups on AngelList. So maybe there's a world in which, you know, you have family, friends or network, you know, old bosses, coworkers, whatever it is, where you can raise, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars on a, on a platform like AngelList and like start deploying capital that way. Um, or maybe you just like do actually know a super rich person that wants access to startups. You can give it to them and you work out some kind of deal with that person of like, Hey, if I want to deploy your money and if it works, we can split, split it this way. Um, I think you can get creative, but I, I do, it's so hard um, because it's such a privilege to be able to even like talk about angel investing and you know, it is super helpful to, to build a track record in some way, both for yourself or if you think you want to get into venture. So I, I generally say like, start with smaller checks because then you can actually think about it from a portfolio construction model, the way, the way VCs have to. Great. Thank you so much, Katie, for, for this conversation. It's a pleasure having you today. Yeah. Thank you.